Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Overrun. I'm Dan Schwester, and I'm here with uh, EMS legal expert, lawyer, paramedic, um, bon, viv- bon vivant, <laughs> Matt Strieger of uh, Kevney and Strieger uh, Law Firm. Matt, welcome to the show. Dan, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. It's always a pleasure to work with you guys. Yeah, thanks. Um, we got an interesting uh, case today because uh, this is a uh, it's a medical case, but it's also a very big legal case. And uh, it's not what people think it really is. Um, we're talking about the uh, case in Aurora, uh, Colorado, back in 2019, uh, a man named uh, Elijah McCain was um, taken into police custody. Um, during that time, he received a dose of ketamine for um, sedation or chemical control, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he ended up going into cardiac arrest and dying. Um, this attracted a lot of attention in the EMS world because not only was a civil suit brought against uh, the, the clinicians and the people involved with this, but this is a criminal case, right, Matt? Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. And I, I, I first want to humanize this. You know, when I, I teach a class about this and the first slide that I put up here and I realize we're on a podcast so you can't see it, it's a picture of, of the boy who died. Um, because I think we we look past sometimes in in healthcare and EMS and when we have these kind of events that this involved a, a human being and a kid who was you know neurodivergent he did not respond to law enforcement's um, stuff the same way that probably you or I would have he wasn't wrong legally in how he did it and I think that Aurora PD unfortunately you know had a couple pathways that they could have chosen there and they picked one that had the worst uh, the worst outcome for this um, but it resulted in two separate cases and I just wanted the audience to to note here that if they look look at this, you're going to see two totally separate pathways, okay? You're going to see a civil pathway, which is the typical negligence case that we're all used to. And y'all learned about that in uh, in EMT school, medic school, nursing school, med school, duty, breach, causation, damages, standard negligence, right? So they're being sued. And in this one, everybody's being sued. So go back to the duty breach causation damages, because yeah. I think people don't realize like when they tell you in EMT school or paramedic school, you can be sued. Right. What does that mean? And what has to happen for that to actually go through? Okay. So for that one, the family in this case filed a civil lawsuit. They're asking for monetary damages. Okay. They're asking for compensation because law, you know, there's no magical way, unfortunately, to bring people back to life or to to fix them when they've been injured. So what happens is you file a civil lawsuit and you need to prove four things to get your money. You need to prove that somebody had a duty to act. In this case, the, the fire rescue medics had a duty to take care of him. Pretty easy, right? They breach that duty by doing something. They either do something they're not supposed to do, not do something they're supposed to do, or screw up the thing that they did. So there's three ways you can breach a duty. And this one, they probably did all three, but we can get down that road later. They damaged somebody as a result of that. Somebody had it. Somebody died here. So that one's not hard to prove. And that the, the, the breach of duty is proximally related. It, it's not attenuated that there's a direct link between the bad thing they did and the bad thing that happened. So that one, again, not hard to prove in this case. So I, I don't think there's much question that they were negligent here any way you cut this. And we can talk about what the negligence was in a few seconds, but but I don't think there's any question that they they breached their duty here and that they they directly caused injury to Elijah McClain as a result. Something bad happened here and we, they didn't pick up on it. And that's that's the connection that you need to make here. Yeah. So there's, and again, there's a difference between an error that was made. Remember the mistake, there's no intent. And this is a really big key for everybody who's looking at this, freaking out, going, oh my God, they charged them criminally. Okay. When you make a mistake in, in, uh, in a civil case, it's negligence and docs and nurses and medics and EMTs, people make mistakes all the time and get sued. The difference is there's no intent to harm there. There's no, what they call in the world, mens rea. 
And mens rea is a legal term for the mental state that you need to do something. So there's no either specific intent or generalized intent, that, which we'll talk about as we look at what the uh, the intents are on these crimes, the elements of these crimes that they're charged with, whether they did or didn't do those things. Okay, so it's it's hard. You gotta you gotta parse that out because there's really no intent here. People make mistakes all the time, still get sued for them, and still have their insurance companies pay damages. So again, I don't think there's any question that the city of Aurora, um, and for the for the record, to the medical director who works for the city of Aurora, the docs listening to this, I just want you guys to know that in the civil case, not in the criminal, the uh, the physician medical director for Aurora Fire Rescue is implicated in that. So again, and, he's and he's implicated basically just because he's the doctor, he's in charge, he signs all the papers, he does all the QA. Well, yeah, does the oversight. And I think the bigger thing on that one is the pattern of practice. So I think the question is there, was he negligent in oversight in not noticing that there was a bad pattern of practice happening? You're not going to be negligent as a medical director for one crew doing one bad thing one time. But as you noted, Dan and I were talking in the, the, the pre-session for this in the green room, if you will, and we noted that this was somewhat of a pattern of practice here. I'm going to use the term here, normalization of deviance, and I'm going to hit that a couple of times. There's a bunch of places where the practice between police and fire rescue became toxic and normalized deviant behavior because they kept getting away with it. It's the Challenger disaster all over again. If you guys go back and look at the 1986 when Challenger exploded, they told them don't take off if the weather's below 50. And they right. were like, well, 50, we did it. And then we showed to lower that to 45, to 40, to 35, to 30, to 25. And then it was in the low 20s and the O-rings cracked and everybody's like, look, we kept getting away with it. Well, they kept getting away with it here. And, you know, this is eventually, you know, if you continue to do bad things, something bad will happen. And this is the bad thing that happened. Dan, I think it's real important for our listeners. That we run through the timeline of the events here. Is that okay if we kind of hit that? And set the yeah, path? definitely. Go ahead. Run. So I have my information just so everybody knows. I have no personalized knowledge of this. I'm just running with what I got from reviewing the publicly available documents. I was not able to review the run report for this. But I was able to review all of the other investigative documents, body camera things, and there is extensive investigative, um, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, documentary, documentary evidence on this that kind of goes through what happened, because there's a lot of data sources. And I think it's really crazy. If you look at this, everybody was wearing a body cam. So they've got a whole bunch of body cams to look at here, not just the one that's on YouTube, plus a bunch of other data sources. So they had yeah. to kind of merge all that in together to get where we are. So this case took place in 2019. It was August 24th. And what's interesting is the first 911 call came in at 2229. So it's about 1030 at night. And they get a call for a suspicious looking kid. Elijah McLean was walking back. He had gone to a convenience store. Um, he was walking back on the streets and somebody said he looks suspicious. Um, clearly not a high priority call for Aurora PD because they don't arrive to him until 14 minutes later. It's 2243. But what's really interesting to me is when you look at this, from the time the APD police car parks until there is a physical altercation between Elijah McLean and the first officer that's there is less than a minute. It took less than 60 seconds for that officer to escalate the use of force. And I kind of question that. I hate to say this, and I'm not a law enforcement officer, but boys, there's got to be a better way to do this. Boy, you know, like, my goodness, there's got to be a better way of doing an interaction with somebody to immediately escalate the use of force. And I think that the first pinch point here was that immediate escalation to use of force in a case like this. Yeah, that uh, I was a law enforcement officer. So that, okay. so my <laughs> perspective on that, that's uh, pretty quick to just pull up, get out of the car, engage somebody in a discussion, and then we're going right to the use of force. Something, something doesn't, it, I, don't, I don't like that. Something's not no. right. 
I don't either. And honestly, I've been a medic for 36 years and I've had a lot of calls go sideways on me. Believe me, a minute to go to use of force for law enforcement just is problematic for me. Yeah. As, as we're, as we're going to see as we go into this. So, yeah. So a minute later, he's on the ground and Aurora PD requests Aurora fire rescue. For everyone who's listening, they have a tiered system there where Aurora fire rescue sends a first response paramedic level engine and Falk, which is a private company, provides the transport, paramedic level transport service. So they've got a tiered system. And depending on where you're listening, that might be very familiar to you or it might be completely foreign. But just so you know that the Aurora Fire Rescue Engine Company, their engine two, I believe, shows up. Uh, five minutes later, 2250, they get on the scene and they show up with at least one paramedic. I believe at least, well, I know one paramedic, at least one EMT and, and a total of four people on the engine company. So in the intervening stretch there, there's a five-minute stretch where they fight with Elijah McClain. Officers are on the scene. They provided a, a what's called a carotid hold twice on him where they tried to um, diminish his level of consciousness by applying direct pressure to his carotid arteries, cutting off the blood flow to his brain. There were multiple episodes of vomiting that took place. And this is all on the body cam. You can watch this if you want to go on YouTube and watch it. But there's a, a lot of pretty aggressive use of force in that initial five minutes. Again, so, what, so what was the predicate offense? What are they, what were they going um, after this guy for other than he's just quote unquote suspicious? Um, the problem is that they initially went after him for looking suspicious and he did not want to engage with law enforcement. He said, I'm on my way home, leave me alone, which he has every right to do. Yeah, um, I kind of think there's a constitutional thing about that. There is. And again, this is way past the scope of what we're here to talk about on this podcast is to go into what law enforcement did wrong there. But you have the right, if you're not doing anything wrong, to not talk to the cops. You have the right to just continue walking. And I think the cops are wrong to apply force here. And then to have escalated it to that level of force with this kid, um, it, it really strikes me as, as um, I'm going to say over the top. Um, again, not talking at this as a law enforcement officer, but I've been, a, I've been an EMS for a long time for it to go to that level of physicality that quickly. And again, for the record, Elijah McClain weighed about 140 pounds. So it's not like he was a hard kid to over, overcome here. He was not LSD'd or PCP'd out. He wasn't jacked out of his brain on spice. Um, you know, he was, or bath salts, you know, he was, um, walking down the street and didn't really want to talk to the cops because he didn't really want to talk to the cops and they took it upon themselves. I think this kind of comes down to Dan, to be, to be completely honest and with, you know, full candor that this was disrespecting a police officer as the offense that he did. And they did not like that. So. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I think that's what it sounds like, but we'll wait for so, the, we'll wait for the legal yeah. stuff to come out with that. So Back to the timeline. So let's go back to the timeline. So now so, the, me the medics on scene, they have ALS equipment. They have all this stuff. This guy's on the ground, probably a few guys trying to hold him down. There's yeah, fight, he's on the ground and, and, and they're, they're holding him down to the ground. So it takes the Aurora engine company crew a good couple of minutes to get to the scene. From the time they park until they're physically present is two to three minutes. Um, because they had to park proximal to the scene. There's a bunch of radio cars, police cars at the scene at this point. So they've got to park down there. And by the time they make patient contact, there's two or three minutes. And I don't fault them for that. They get there. And what I really fault them for is a firefighter goes down and takes his earbuds out because Elijah McClain still has his ear pods in. And other than that, they do nothing. They give him the, the, the infamous Dan, and I know you'll laugh when I say this, they give him the stare of life. Basically, they shine a flashlight on him and they watch him and they don't do any basic assessment. He's laying on his side. He's not moving. Somebody is watching him and go, yeah, he's breathing. And that's it. And they requested the ketamine. And what's interesting for the, to the people listening is 
the Aurora Fire Rescue Medics don't carry that in their formulary. They can give it, but it has to get there on the Falk Ambulance. So there's a good four minute delay maybe until about 2256 before the Falk ambulance arrives. They observe him prone on the grass with three officers on top of him handcuffed. He is not moving. So 2257 to 58, and again, there's a little bit of a discrepancy on the times here because of different sources. They've got the gurney at the patient and he is now on the ground making nonverbal guttural noises. At 2259, 2230, they hit him with 500 ketamine in their right deltoid. I am, his chest is moving and he's not making any sounds at this point. A minute later, there's a discussion about taking his handcuffs off and putting them on the gurney in a soft restraint. They allow him, put him on the gurney. He literally falls back to the gurney at this point, face slack, vomit in his mouth. No one is doing any patient care. And to this point, I want everybody to remember that they have been on the scene for a good six or seven minutes. There was never a pre-ketamine set of vital signs and really no good reason not to do it. He wasn't fighting to the point where they couldn't get a vitals and they certainly didn't ask or try. And I think if they had asked or tried, it would be a very different um very different set of circumstances here because at no point did they get a baseline BP, pulse oximetry, pulse rate, um, pupils, clear his airway. None of that stuff was done pre-ketamine. They basically let him sit on the ground, shine a flashlight on him and hit him with 500 ketamine. The problem is a minute later, they put him in the ambulance. And at this point, they're like, hey, maybe we should clear his airway. Notice that he's not breathing and has no pulse. They note the cardiac arrest on the run report at 2307, according to the, the investigative reports that I have, and start resuscitation at that point. They arrive at the hospital at 2317. He's pronounced dead after resuscitation at the hospital. But at no point prior to the administration of ketamine, and at no point subsequent to the administration of ketamine, before he was in the ambulance and they noticed that he was in arrest, was any assessment any patient care done, and nothing was even attempted. And I think this is a really different case, Dan. If they look and they're like, hey, APD officer, can you sit him up so I can clear his airway? Hey, I'd like to try to get a blood pressure on him. What do you guys think of that? Can we sit him up and see what he does? They just stood and watched. And that's, I think, the damning point about this. Because you know, to kind of go into this now, at the end of the day, this is an ketamine case. And I want everybody listening to this to get out of this in your mind. Everybody is, is, is making Elijah McLean a case about the administration of ketamine. And Dan, that's your area. I'll let you talk about ketamine indications, contraindications, and side effects of whether it was appropriate and what the dosing was, because the dosing was very clearly not in accordance with the, the, the guidance that they're supposed to be giving based on his weight. They, they overdosed them on that. But it's not about that. And I'll tell you why in a few minutes, why this isn't a ketamine case, but it's not. This is a case about basic patient care. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important thing that we're to take away from this is that first and foremost, the patient care wasn't done. Um, you know, we can get into, we're going to get into the clinical side of this of ketamine, um, you know, and we'll, you know, I'll go over that um, later on in the show. And we've, we've had this on a few times. Um, Ketamine is one of those, it's the darling drug now in EMS and everybody thinks it's like a magic potion and it does everything perfectly and nothing ever goes wrong. Um, so it's a dissociative anesthetic. Um, I was interested in the case, I, we'll go in more in the show notes, but I was really interested in the case that they they, they fixated on the 500 milligram dose. Yeah. Um, he's about 140 kilograms for excited delirium or agitated um you know, dangerously agitated patients, uh, the dose is four milligrams per kilogram. Uh, so for him, probably 280, 300 would probably be right. more of an appropriate dose. Um, you know, one size doesn't fit all. 
Uh, that was my first observation of this. Uh, the second thing is, is, you know, you get people out there and it's the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know. Um, clinically, we think that we know a drug because we watch a PowerPoint or we listen to a podcast about it and now we're an expert on it. And the reality is you have to have some, you have to really know your pharmacology and you have to understand what this drug does, what it's capable of doing. Um, when we first got ketamine, I remember they were talking, they used to say, oh, they'll, people will never lose their airway reflexes. Uh, you know, they'll never... Their blood pressure will never never drop when it's uh, they're on ketamine, and I gotta be honest, happens all the time. <laughs> um, you know, knowing the medication and knowing what it's indicated for and what it's not indicated for um, is is first and foremost. Yeah. Second thing is what clinically, what is the indication you're giving this medication for? Um, I, I think that's the point, Dan. I'm, like, you can see me here and the people in the podcast can't see me kind of pointing at him there. I think the point is, why were they giving this to begin with? What was the clinical indication? And to me, this is anchoring bias. They were called to give ketamine. We give ketamine to things like this all the time. Therefore, we give ketamine. The word here is anchoring bias. They were called out for something. Therefore, they did the thing. And they were never used critical thinking skills. Dan, I want to say this really quick and then I'll, I'll throw the baton back to you. The worst word that EMS providers ever utter and um, ever, ever, ever. And if you are a listener to this podcast and you ever speak this word ever again, you deserve whatever you get. The worst word to ever use is drunk. Drunks are patients. Drunks have heart attacks and drunks have strokes and drunks get bleeds and drunks have metabolic issues. And everybody listening to this has missed that, myself included. I have missed because I called somebody a drunk. I missed a guy with a core temp of 86 and a blood glucose of 32. And I did that when I was a medic in Greenville, South Carolina, third 25 years ago. And I got called out for it, rightly so, because I was dead wrong. But when you call somebody a drunk, you miss the other stuff that's wrong with them. Don't call people drunks. By the same token, in this case, they got called out for a psych who had excited delirium to give ketamine, and they never looked past that. And they never even looked at the patient to say, gee, what's going on with him? How should we manage this guy who's in front of us? He was a drunk. He was an excited delirium is basically what they called him. And they treated him like that without any regard for what his actual clinical presentation was. And that's what killed him. And that's what, unfortunately, I think is going to sink them in the charges. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is, you know, this is that just a drunk, uh, which I think should always be a diagnosis of, of exclusion after everything else is ruled out. Okay, he's probably drunk. That's fine. Let's get a blood alcohol level. I'm not worried mm -hmm. about it. Um, you know, we forget this stuff. And, you know, I think it's... I think there's a mentality on calls with cops. I think sometimes we have some EMS providers who forget their role. Um, they want to be a cop and, or they want to be cop affiliated. And or they're afraid of the cops. Or, or the cops have authority and badges and guns. Sure. And they don't have the experience to look at the cops and sure. say to them, Hey, you know, sir or ma'am, depending on who the police officer is there. Give me a second here. Let me try to, you know, stop, hold on, time out. Let me do a quick timeout and try to do my job here. And at that point, if this whole call goes differently, if they tap the cop on the shoulder and go, hey, sit him up, let me try to clear his airway. And if the cops tell them no, the cops own it. You can't yeah. stop them. They're yeah, still absolutely. in law enforcement custody. But the, the medics have done their job at that point, where if the medics do that, this is a completely different outcome. And that's the bifurcated point. That's the point of an inflection in this case, is that they tap the cop on the shoulder and go, hey, dude, let me sit him up, 
clear his airway, get a pulse oximetry on him, look at his pupils. Maybe he has an opioid overdose and I want to hit him with some Narcan. Like there's a million things. I, let me check his blood sugar. Again, how many things could we have done differently there if they had said, hey, give me a few seconds to sit him up and manage him. Right. Hey, or hey guys, I'm really worried. He doesn't look good. Let, yeah. Let's take a look at him. Let us yeah. in there and take a look at him. Um, with a uh, crew resource management, they talk about the pace, um, you know, the, the pace algorithm and it's probe alert challenge emergency. Um, I've talked about it before. I, I use it a lot. When we talk to cops, it's like, you know, that probe like, oh, hey, guys, what's up? What can we help you with? Are you, is he OK? Or, you know, are things going on? I'd be like. Hey guys, I think you need to get off his chest. I don't think he can breathe well. That's your challenge. Like, hey guys, yeah. I'm concerned here. Uh, that's your alert. Uh, your challenge is, guys, I need you got to get off him. He's he's going to get sick. This is going to be a problem. We need you. I need you to. I need you to get off him right now. Um, and then emergency is, listen, he's not breathing. We have to intervene. You have to let us do this. Um, it's a stepwise kind of response. And it, it's a good way to kind of engage law enforcement um, without being that con- going right to that confrontational, like, hey, you guys are killing this guy. Get off him. Yeah. Um, and people get defensive. But sometimes when, you know, in the heat of the moment, you have people like, well, hey, hey, check you need to check that. Is that okay? And a lot of times people will pull back. And I, I think it's a terrible thing that happened here. And, you know, I don't want to go out there. I really don't want to believe that the majority of police officers and the majority of clinicians out there don't care about the people we serve or are hostile to the people that we serve. Not for a moment. But we forget, I think, I think people forget sometimes that adrenaline and the heat of a moment and things that happen in these things you know, an individual can kind of lose focus. And that's what the team is there for. You're supposed to be able to be pulled back and to be able to be, to help, you know, someone like, you know, they're leaning on this guy, he's struggling and then he stops struggling. I mean, that's a danger sign, you know, clinically, if he's fighting and now all of a sudden he's not fighting, there's a reason there's not, he didn't give up. There's no reason for that. So that's an, that's a danger sign. Um, Another thing that I talk about too, you know, we talk about with, with ketamine or any drug that we're going to give to somebody, I don't care if it's ketamine, it could be Haldol, it could be Draperidol, it could be Versed, whatever you're using to calm somebody down so that you can assess and treat them. That person needs to go on end title capnography and needs to be on a pulse oximeter and you need to be able to provide supplemental oxygenation, airway management, suctioning, the things that you have to do to keep that person alive. If you're giving somebody a drug that's altering their consciousness, you're taking them under your wing. That's your responsibility. Yeah. The thing you said before, I really just want to hit everybody listening to this. If there's one thing that the listeners here can take home from this, it is the CRM stuff you hit before. And I had a conversation with some colleagues down in Dallas. I was last week at the AAA in Dallas and we were having a lunch conversation off, you know, you know how the conversations kind of wander and they meander. And we were talking about this point. And the thing that's hard is like, I'm 52 years old and I got gray hair and I got 36 years of being a medic. I have no problem going up to a police lieutenant. And I did this the other day on a call because I still work the truck. And I tapped the police lieutenant on the shoulder and I said, no, she's going to come with us. We're going to get her medical clearance and we're going to go and she can go to the lockup after that because she's not right. And the cop was like, why? And I'm like, because she's not acting appropriately. Like you guys are trying to leave her alone and you know, you want to ask her some basic questions and you're going to ROR her and she's not letting you. 
she needs clearance for that. And the cop looked at me and he goes, you know what? That's a good point. So we took her, we put her on the stretcher. We fought with her a little bit because she wasn't happy about it. Took her to the hospital against her will and got her medical clearance. During that period, by the way, I sat her up on the stretcher and I put her on a pulse oximeter so I could monitor her, her oxygenation status, even though she was kicking and spitting and you know otherwise indicating that she didn't have any really airway issues. But the key is how do we empower an 18-year-old kid who doesn't have 36 years of gravitas to look at a cop and go, sir or ma'am, stop for a second. Let me do my job here. And the way you described it is a great way of escalating that. And I love that. But I want all the listeners here to not be afraid to respectfully and calmly and cogently intervene when they see something like this happen and try to get in and say, hey, hang on a second. Something's not right here. I don't care who you are. The newest, newest, newest EMT, the newest medic, the newest nurse, the newest doctor can look at the senior most guy or gal at that scene or in the hospital and say, something's wrong here. Time out. Pay attention. I don't like this. You have everybody's got the right to do that. Okay. There's there's countless stories over the years of planes that have crashed and patients that have died because somebody who was the lowest ranking person was not empowered to sit forward and say, time out, listen to me, something's really bad here. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think it's not something that we teach in school. And I think we teach a hierarchy when we get out on the road that, you know, oh, you're a brand new EMT, you're a rookie, you're you you keep your mouth shut. You don't tell me what I don't tell me my You're an FNG. Yeah. But here's the thing that FNG is just as much in the yep. jackpot as anybody else. You Absolutely. have a responsibility, not only to the patient, but to yourself. Yep. Like if somebody's making a mistake, you are not obligated to follow that mistake. And I've, I've told new EMTs like, Hey, look, if you think there's a problem, you have to tell me yep. because I, you know, if you tell me, Hey, Danny, I don't think this guy's breathing. I, I can go, all right, no, he's got chest rise. No, sats are good and title's good. No, we're good. And this is why, and this is what we're going to do. Or I go, oh boy, yeah, you're right. Here we go. You know, um, there are a lot of things, I, I think arrogance and hubris in this job and especially in any public safety job is really a harbinger of doom. I mean, the, you think that you just know everything and, you know, you're not willing to listen to anything or you think you've seen everything. I think that's when you need to take a step back and really think hard about what you're doing out here. Yeah. Um, you know, that just a drunk mentality, just a, just a druggy mentality, just a psych patient mentality. Um, we know these populations are underserved. We know they're sick. We know they have other issues. Um, you know, it, it's just a, it's a bad road to go down. It's like, you know, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. When you have yeah. that mental state, everything's just something to be hammered down. Yeah. And, and this goes to every level. I mean, to, for the listeners here, I was on a BLS truck about a month ago and I had a set of medics on a job that was doing something. And <laughs> they, they, I, mean, I know Dan is laughing because he's heard this story, but they were taking a clinical pathway I disagreed with. And I very respectfully looked at them and I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea. And they said, why? I said, this is why. And I, I timed them out. I explained my clinical reasoning as to why my thought was the right thought to do. They took a pause. They listened to me as a peer. Again, I got a lot of time and I got gray hair and I present myself well. So they did that. And that's something for everybody to listen to is to be calm to not be confrontational, to be respectful, to be explanatory and cogent in the arguments you make and the explanation as to why you think this is a bad thing. What's funny is at the end of the day, they stopped and listened to me to their benefit mm-hmm. and to the patient's benefit. We took the patient to the hospital and the attending at the hospital in the ER is like, wow, 
yeah, that was a smart move because that other thing you guys wanted to do, that would not have been good. That would have been bad for the patient. So um, I, I think we've touched on a couple of things on how we can avoid this without even getting into the, the medical side of it. You know, first and foremost, you're there for the patient. You're not there for anything else. You're not there for the edification of your agency. You're not there because you, you look good in a uniform. You are strictly there as a clinician for that patient. That patient may be in handcuffs. That may patient may not be somebody that you'd associate with in the real world. But at this point, that's what your job is. So do your job. Secondly, one of the other things that you see in these cases, especially when somebody's agitated or upset, is try to get the five people from all talking at once at the person. And if you're that per, you know, if you can establish some rapport, you can have one person just talk to this guy and everybody else take a couple step back, steps back. I think a lot of times, anecdotally, that works for us. Um, you know, somebody who's altered or is coming out of something like, like this, or, or, you know, um, the easiest one is like somebody who gets woken up with Narcan or Dextrose and they're kind of disoriented. The worst thing to do is have six people yelling at them to stay down or not move or anything like right. that. Turn the lights down a little bit. Stop shining the flashlights in the guy's eyes. You're not SWAT. And, you know, have one person talk to him in a low voice and get them all oriented and get them acclimated. And then we'll sit them up and let's get an assessment. Um, if he's still resistive or things like that, let the cops do what they have to do. They can handcuff them. They can do all that from a sitting position. They train, trust me, train ad nauseum for this stuff. Right. Um, if you're going to give medications or if it's a situation where, you know, this person's really a danger to himself or you're really afraid that this person's going to have a medical incident because of what's been going on or you think that there's something that you can intervene to help the patient with have a real honest discussion with your medical controller, your medical director, and try to think about what's, what's the least you can do to affect the most. Um, you know, not everybody deserves, not everybody needs to get RSI. Not everybody needs ketamine. Um, there's a lot of other agents that, that are carried around the country that are national registry formulary um, that work fairly well and don't have these don't have the side effects or the downsides that other agents do. Again, if you think it only has a hammer, you're going to think everything's a nail. Ketamine is not a panacea for everything. Um, other drugs were, work very effectively. Haldol is very effective. Uh, Versed is very effective. And the nice thing about Versed is it's very short acting. Um, you know, those are those might be better choices in a short term situation. And finally, from a clinical perspective, you know, talking about doing a full assessment, all these patients get a full assessment and you're looking for trauma. You're looking for anything that's going to explain why they are the way they are um, at a minimum ECG, pulse ox, nasal capnography for any patient that has an altered mental status, or you've given something that has an altered mental status. Right. Um, use your pace, you know, use that pace algorithm, you know, probe. Um, alert, challenge, emergency, um, as an escalating way of intervening in these situations um, as a clinician. And, you know, these are important things that we need to do, not only for the patients, but as Matt said, you know, Matt, if, if the Aurora medics did this at any stage or any of, unfortunately, too many incidents across the country, where a medic maybe was on scene in a situation like this and had intervened, 
there's a lot of things that could have changed these outcomes. Yeah, and, and really quick, because I do want to go forward and talk about the charges here and you know hit the, the, the back of this. Yeah, I want to get to that because that's the but aftermath of this. It is, but I, I just want to say one thing here. The one good thing about law enforcement and fire services, if you've been doing this for more than a week, you know that they're very hierarchical. Unlike EMS, where it's basically my ambulance, my world, I'm God in the back of my ambulance, and we don't have supervision on, on every scene. Pretty much every law enforcement scene is going to have a sergeant or a lieutenant there, and every fire apparatus ever put out in the universe has an officer. So if you're there and you're trying to conflict resolve, you don't have to conflict resolve with every person at the scene. You need to conflict resolve with the guy or the gal with the gold badge, the white shirt, the lieutenant's bars, the helmet, whatever the thing is, who's the, the, the person who has authority there, that's the person. My little incident that I worked at the other day, there was a sergeant and a lieutenant and I pulled the lieutenant off to the side, the sergeant came with us. And I looked at the lieutenant and I'm like, Lou, let me take her. I explained my solution to him. He said, yes, we went back to all the officers that were there and they told them how this is gonna play out. I didn't have to fight or fight. I didn't have to discuss this with six police officers who were there and figure out who's going to be the person in charge. They give you that. Use it. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially in the hierarchy of uh, police and fire. The paramilitary structure is very, very cultured. Yep. It's very in, in, almost like baked into the to the world. Um, if I got on scene, my lieutenant told me to do something. You don't even think about it. You just do it. Or if he tells you, hey, stop, you're like, that's it. It's over. Yeah. Um, There's negatives to that as well. Don't get me wrong. I agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I'm looking at it. In I'm a, leveraging I'm, that here. <laughs> I'm talking about that in a positive manner yes. of being yes. the adult on scene to come in and kind of bring calm in. Remember, most of the times your supervisors are not involved in the actual what's going on. They're back. They're kind of back away looking at the whole picture. That's a perfect opportunity for somebody to go over there and say, hey, Sarge, hey, Lieutenant. Um, I'm worried about this guy. I got to get in and take a look at him. And the lieutenant will do that. The sergeant yeah. will do that. Um, yeah. You know, and like you've had, re- you know, like when you get to our age and you've had the relations with the, the guys that you work with and those, I, I did actually one time on a call say to say to a sergeant, um, do you like your pension? Do you enjoy your pension? Are you going to enjoy your pension? You're not. <laughs> you need to let me do this, yeah. you know, but again, I don't expect the 20 year old EMT to do that, but Right. For the 20 year old EMTs out there, you have to think of your patient first. And I would much rather be explaining to my to people like Matt uh, in a deposition that I tried, but so and so refused to let me do anything, as opposed to, well, I didn't do anything because that was their problem and I didn't. Get I didn't want to talk or challenge them, is not Correct. a good defense. Um, and even the 18 and the 20 year old EMTs, the new people out there can go to a police officer and say, they can go to the Sergeant Lieutenant, the engine company Lieutenant or Captain Battalion Chief and go, Chief, boss, hang on a second. I, I, I wanna talk to you. This is important. This person's not well. I have a I'm, problem here. And I think that they're actually the better people to go to. If you start going to a bunch of officers that are all in the middle of fighting with people under adrenaline, they're not going to respond well to you. But these people are usually not directly engaged right. with, with, you know, challenging with the patient. They're usually standing off to the side a little bit. And that is the best place to go for your pace intervention is to the person who's standing off to the side. Yeah. Find, find, find the grown up in the room. And the second thing is talk about what you're worried about. Talk about your concerns. Yeah. I'm scared this guy's going to be sick. I'm scared that we might hurt this guy. Let's talk about the criminal charges because I know we're up on a hard out and um, let's see what, where are we going from here? And what, what do you think is the implications down the road? Because this is pretty rare that we had criminal charges filed against clinicians. 
So it's interesting you say that, Dan, because I'll go off topic for a second on this just to kind of get background. I did litigation for healthcare for a decade, and I represented mostly doctors, some nurses, and some allied health. And we've always lamented what we call the criminalization of medicine. And where's that line where law enforcement wants to get involved? The answer is law enforcement gets involved when they want to, because there's a lot of cases where if they want to file charges, they can. There's a lot of things that happen that fit into these definitions. Most of them don't get charged in fairness. There is prosecutorial discretion as to when to charge and not charge. This was a very high profile case. It is a racially charged case for a lot of reasons. Um, at the end of the day, and I, again, I don't want to talk about the, the history of the past practices with Aurora PD, but when they looked at this, they found that there was a pretty significant pattern of practice with the African or American community being disproportionately targeted for a lot of things. One is use of force, one is ketamine. So there's reasons that this case ended up getting charged where a lot don't. What I want to talk about here is the same way we talked about with... Um, with negligence, duty, breach, causation, and damages. There's two charges that were given here. One is manslaughter, and the other is criminally negligent homicide. Negligence is in both words there, so that's interesting, that there's a level of negligence that you can have that'll actually give rise to criminal charges. So let's talk about this, and let's talk about whether they did the stuff that's here. Manslaughter in Colorado law is defined as recklessly causing the death of another person. Well, that doesn't tell me a whole lot. Lovely lawyers who make a definition like that. So you got to look a little deeper and say, what's reckless? So recklessness is to consciously disregard. That's one is conscious disregard. Number two, a substantial. And number three, an unjustifiable risk that you would for cause the death of another person. So that doesn't require the intent to kill. It requires the knowing engagement with the risk producing acts. So let's run that down. Okay. Did they consciously disregard a risk producing act here? Yeah. It's pretty hard to argue that if you go in here and I've got this in my, my PowerPoint deck that I use when I teach this, there are protocols that say, be sure to evaluate the patient adequately to determine their medical condition. Don't restrain the patient in a prone position or any position that impairs the airway continuous attention to the patient's airway circulation and vital signs is mandatory. Those three things are in the basin, their, their patient restraint protocol for uh, Aurora fire, but they're in almost every protocol that's ever been written. So it's hard to say to me that if you've been trained and been doing this job for more than a week, that you know that those are things you're not supposed to do or supposed to do. So your conscious disregard of those elements is pretty tough. Was it a substantial risk that something bad would happen? Yeah, you got a guy who could die. You know that giving ketamine is a psychoactive drug. You know the patients without airways die. Number three, was it unjustifiable? Well, in this case, yeah, it was. I think that that's a really interesting case. If you were there and you were fighting and kicking and screaming and he was absolutely out of his mind and he was took seven people to hold him down and you didn't manage his airway effectively and you didn't take vital signs effectively during that, then it would be justifiable. His clinical condition made it impossible to do those things. Here, the video camera, the video evidence, the, the body cameras, body-worn cameras are absolutely conclusive that those were not the case. It wasn't an unjustifiable risk. And that you know that if you don't manage patients' airways, you don't manage their vital signs, you watch a patient who's unconscious, anybody who's unconscious is unconscious for a bad reason that runs the risk of death. I honestly don't think it's a stretch to say that manslaughter is an easy charge to prove here. I hate to say that, but I don't think it's it, it's an impossible proof. Same thing with criminally negligent homicide, okay? 
Basically, and I love a logical definition like this, the law says criminally negligent homicide in Colorado is causing the death of another person by criminal negligence. So I kind of slap my head on the forehead <laughs> for that because only lawyers would do that. But then they define criminal negligence. Again, the failure to perceive, one, through a gross deviation from the standard of reasonable care, two, a substantial and unjustifiable risk, again, three and four, the death will result. So here, did they fail to perceive yeah, I would say it's pretty undeniable yeah. that they didn't perceive that bad stuff might happen. Did they grossly deviate? Yeah, it's pretty hard to say that this wasn't regular deviations from the standard of care. If they had messed up the ketamine dose, I think you could say that that was regular negligence. But the combination of things that they did here, the failure to manage the airway, the failure to take vital signs, failure to position the patient, failure to suction the airway. Oh, and on top of that, giving a ketamine dose that was not quite twice what you should have given. You know, those five things, I think you'll hit the gross deviations. Was it substantial? Sure. Pretty obvious there. Was it unjustifiable? Same thing we talked about. Was there a risk of death? Yes. We talked about that too. Again, I don't think that criminally negligent homicide is a stretch here. The point here is though, and this is the most important thing in the world. They were also charged, by the way, with um with a assault in the second degree, which I, I think we've already talked about the two bigger crimes. So I don't want to waste time talking about that. So there's a bunch of e the things that are alleged in the criminal complaint, the inaccurate diagnosis of excited delirium and the overdose on ketamine. Um, but the important part is that there were four points here. One was a consent point, which I'm really not going to talk about. I don't think that's really an issue. And if they're going to estimate the body weight, we'll talk about with the ketamine in a second. And then I'm going to kind of flip it back to you as to why this isn't a ketamine case. But the improper assessment and the improper to assess and monitor the patient before and after giving a medicine, I think is the key here. Because if they had done any kind of rudimentary patient assessment and any kind of basic um, rudimentary patient intervention, positioning and airway management, sit them up suction him and the case is over and nothing happens or try to sit him up and try to suction him and the case is over and they're not charged. Yeah, I agree. Um, and the other, you know, the other important thing too is, you know, like we were talking about, there might be a situation where a patient is so out of their, out of their mind that you have to calm them down before you can assess them. But that's, that, but that's, that's unjustifiable. That's the unjustifiable part right. of the criminal charges, Dan, and that's considered in there because the, the law says, hey, if there's a reason to take the risk of giving ketamine before you took vitals, take the risk. Right. But here there was Absolutely. no reason to take that risk. No. And, you know, again, why this is an ketamine case is I, I'm going to link to uh, Ruben Strayer's EM updates uh, page because he's done a lot of good work with this and he's taught a lot of people about this drug. Um you know, the safety profile of ketamine is very wide. Um, there's not, there's not a lot of toxicity. Um, th this isn't a drug that's toxic at a certain dose. Um, there was a kid who got, um, and Ruben talks about this on one of his talks. He talks about uh, a kid who got a multi, multi-fold overdose of ketamine uh, in the hospital, slept for 23 hours, discharged to home with no sequela. Yeah. But they watched the kid. The kid was monitored. He had oxygen. They monitored their airway. They monitored vital signs. That's the key. It's not the ketamine, folks. No. This is not the ketamine. Is not the evil agent here. This is a bunch of. This is a. This is a. I think this is a cultural issue. I think this is a problem with individual clinicians who didn't know what they were dealing with, or didn't think to treat this person as a patient, um, and 
things went bad and they were not on top of it. Yeah. And I think What's if any of those yeah. things change, these guys are, everything's okay. And this uh, kid might be alive. I, I am not a toxicologist. That is not my specialty. Full disclosure, that's not the thing that I do, not why I'm on this podcast. But like you, I relied on experts. A very dear friend of mine is named Tammy Schaefer. Tammy was a medic in New Jersey, um, went to med school and has had an extensive career as a physician, um, including a board certified toxicologist and formerly the state toxicologist for the state of Maine. And I called her before going and doing my research on this too. And she said precisely the same words as your peer did saying, um, this is not a ketamine issue on the drug. Now, what's really interesting is this is borne up by the coroner's report. And the thing is, if you look at this, it is one piece of paper that makes this definitively not a ketamine case. The coroner's report says the manner of death is undetermined. There was hemorrhage into the left side of the soft tissues of the neck, probably from the um, the, um, the choke hold that they put the yeah. patient on, the, 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 the carotid holds. And there was narrow coronary arteries which might've had something to do with this, but they state that at post, the ketamine level was 1400 nanograms per milliliter plus having cannabinoids on board, which were not really the issue. And that the blood ketamine was at a therapeutic level. You cannot prove death from ketamine with a therapeutic ketamine level. Thank you. Good day. That's it. You're done. Ball the game. whole case on ketamine ends at that moment. This is not a ketamine case. The Carter's report bears up the words you just said, okay? There's a whole bunch of other things that this might be. It might be a natural death if he had some mental illness or an arrhythmia or some other problem that happened related to his medical problems that this exacerbated. And it might be homicide if the officer's actions led to his death. It might be uh, an accident if it was, say, an idiosyncratic drug reaction. And all of these things are listed on the report. But at the end of the day, the coroner can't tell which of them it was. But you know what the one the coroner said it's not? Ketamine. Ketamine. So it's not a ketamine case. That's it. Thank it's you. Not. Move along. It's over and move on because yeah. that's not what this is about. Right. And don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Know your medications. Treat yeah. your patients like patients. Uh, and when you have to, you have a duty to intervene. You have yeah. a duty to protect people. So. Don't don't tunnel vision, don't anchoring bias. You know, how many times we've all been told this over the years that when you get dispatched on chest pain, it might not be chest pain. So you need to like do the assessment when you get there. These guys, unfortunately, and I think they're all men on the scene here, the, the, the medical crew is all men. These guys just tunnel vision, they anchoring biased on excited delirium on what they were dispatched for. And they never look past that. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it. Um, those are good lessons to be learned. Um, we're going to have all this up on the show notes. Um, Matt Strieger from Kevney Strieger. Hey, Matt, uh, what do you got? What do you have out there available? Do you have a program that they can uh, follow, or is there training if they want to come out, reach out to you and come to for you to come to them or? So it's interesting. We uh, are just developing and I'm going to be speaking at EMS Physicians Conference in January. Um, I'm honored to always get to go out and speak at the conference for EMSP. And we always talk about legal things. And I think our entire legal update is going to be this case this year, just because it's such a big deal for everybody involved. Um, but, but we will happily come out and teach this class or do this remotely because it's such a big thing right now. Um, obviously, Dan, I appreciate the commercial. We do lots of other leadership development training, um, crisis intervention training. We 
don't do CRM, um, but I'm sure Dan, you have people that do do CRM training. But a lot of what we do is is leadership development, professional development training for people. Um, you can go to our website, kidneystreeter.com, and you can find us there. And I'm sure Dan is going to be a, a really helpful marketing guy for my law firm and put that <laughs> someplace out there. Yeah, we're going to we'll put that out in the show notes. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, everything we could do, Matt, you know, no, I, I, out, so. look, you know what, Dan, and I appreciate the marketing, but I want everybody to understand here. I'm not on this podcast to market my law firm. I'm happy to help your agency do stuff. Trust me. This is about clinicians, medics, EMTs, nurses, docs, hearing your voice and my voice as senior people that have done a lot of stuff going next time I'm on a job, next time I'm with a patient, I'm going to take a timeout. I'm going to not anchoring bias. I'm going to intervene when I see something funny. The newest EMTs, the one thing I want here is I want some brand new EMT to come up to me a year, two years, five years, 10 years from now and say, I heard you and Dan on that podcast. You empowered me to stop and intervene on a case on a call where something funny was happening with a medic, a cop, a firefighter, doesn't matter who it was, and throw a red flag and say, hey, hang on a second, time out for a second and stop a bad event from happening. And if one person listening to this podcast today gets that seminal moment in their career, that's a life saved. It's career saved. And I do this overwhelmingly for those types of interactions. If you have that moment, find me at a conference. I speak um, before the, the, the this this podcast won't be up, and I'll be speaking at the New Jersey EMS conference this week. Um, but there's all sorts of other conferences and opportunities to meet with me. Please, if you're one of those people that has a moment from this podcast where you intervened and had a positive outcome because of what we said to you today, find me, find Dad, shake our hand, thank us. I want to thank you for doing that because that's what we're all about with this. It's about doing better and that's yeah, doing better. Absolutely doing better. Matt Strieger, thank you so much for being on the show. Always great to have you on. Uh, you're a great friend to us and um, a lot of good information here. And uh, all this stuff's going to be up in the show notes. Um, and again, like, like we said, just be careful. Do the right thing out there and treat your patients. All right. Okay. So for the air overrun, uh, I'm Dan Schwester and uh, thanks for coming and we'll talk to you next time.